0: One of the um, <coughs> pivotal instructions in my, uh, in my own uh, practice career was one that I had from a teacher one time who said, nothing is worth thinking about. And I thought that's an outrageous thing to say. I mean, first of all, I, that person I know is a very good thinker and I pride myself on being a reasonable thinker And I think there are a lot of things that are really important to think about. And I think he was meaning it in the particular case. Actually, I think what he was meaning is that nothing in the sense of emptiness, voidness, is worth thinking about. (laughs) (laughs) But... uh, I think it also is a meditation instruction that while we sit, have a whole day to think. This is a th- this is a time to just be here. Give a sabbatical to the mind, let it rest. Doesn't need to go any place or do anything or solve anything. So that perhaps your experience can be that of. Uh, noticing thoughts as they arise and pass away, just in the same way that you might notice a sound that arises and passes away. So we'll just sit. We'll sit for about a half hour and from time to time I'll ring some bells Watch what happens in your mind when the bell sounds, if you startle, if it's pleasant. Watch the way in which the attention follows the sound until it's all the way gone or anticipates a sound. I won't say anything else now for the next half hour. Rest, watch how thoughts arise and pass away in the mind, Just the same way that sounds arise and pass away in the mind. When you can do that, you have the pleasure of feeling that the mind is free, not held or caught by anything, and open and vast, transparent. The place into which insights arise, understanding develops, will fit. A very interesting moment happened this week. Really, one of those moments where the mind shifts radically from one moment to the next. Uh, I I found, I listened to myself saying to somebody, uh, as I have been since for these last several months, especially since we've been involved in the war and reports of the war. I found myself giving the answer that I've regularly been giving to people, people like my hairdresser or the person in the post office or the person in the checkout stand in the supermarket. People say, in natural course of events, they say, how are you? And I've been saying, uh, I'm as good as I can be, given what's going on in the world. And in a certain way, mostly people got that. And they said yes, and then we had some moments of sharing, and, Everybody is concerned, and i felt sometimes like that was absolutely the right thing to do. Because uh, to not say that seemed to me to be uh, not noticing that uh, something uh, unusual and critical in terms of, from uh, from at least the perspective of this country, is happening at this point. And often, uh, since it's been on my mind a lot, and we've talked about it here a lot, uh i felt uh consoled in those moments when i say to somebody i'm as good as i can be given this what's going on in the world and they say yes yes i you know and they they share and i share and we talk a little bit and i felt this is great i remember saying to you here the biggest consolation i have is i talk to my friends and under those circumstances those people have become my instant friends because we share a bond and we talk So this week I said to somebody in some circumstance, I'm as good as I can be given the condition in the world, and I heard myself saying that, and I thought to myself, am I really? Am I really as good as I can be? And it was the first time that I heard it that way. Or is there something going on that I'm not aware of? Something that um, is coming out in this way, somewhat obsessively. There's a way in which, in that very moment, just in asking the question, so I tell that to you, that just the coming up in the mind is enough to have the answer fill itself, fill in the blank. I didn't even have to think about it. And I thought, you know what I haven't noticed? haven't noticed how mad I am. We talked about it earlier this morning when we took precepts, uh, because today is the Wednesday morning for doing the precepts, that several people talked about uh, attention to right speech. And had they, under certain circumstances of uh, stress, had they, in fact, spoken in a way that was kind and... uh, uh, really for the good of the other person, for the good of themselves. And I was able to say, you know, just this week I I noticed that if I ask myself that question, am I doing right speech now? I'm probably not, that there's probably something else going on in there. And I realized in that flash of uh, noticing that what I hadn't really looked at was how frightened I've been. and. Uh, I thought I knew that, but really, uh, pursuant to that, how angry I am, because we get frightened when people make us angry or something makes us angry. It's really the reflexive, the intuitive, the uh, instinctive response to being frightened is we get mad. So quite apart from the fact that I have have political views, I have philosophical views about the correctness of, of war under... Any circumstances. I have an addition to it and I really wasn't noticing that, but you all know it because you know me for lots of years. I have a mind that uh, responds to challenge by really catastrophizing, and only catastrophizing, imagining the worst. These are very difficult times, I don't want to make it light, but you know the difficult times started before three weeks ago. They started before september eleventh. World has always been having a difficult time. Someone came up after class last week and reminded me that there are at least twenty and more than that, the twenty major wars happening in this world at this very moment that I had at least not been noticing or talking to you about. This particular one we are in the middle of, but and the fact that we're in the middle of it makes it more appropriate, I think, for us to be awake to it. That's the way things work. So what I am saying is that not not that I don't think it's appropriate to be awake to what's going on. Concerned, um, wanting to respond, even worried a little bit, I mean, or even a lot, for what we imagine might be the sequelae of what is happening now. But for myself, I realized that it had a certain amount of unrecognized anger in my part, uh, that there was something a little bit perhaps um, uh, hostile even in uh, responding to somebody else's perfectly kind remark, you know, how are you, Uh, by saying I'm as good as I can be given the state of the world. In that moment, I wonder, I thought I was being helpful to that person and inviting them to share and recognize what's going on in the world. Maybe I'm kind of punishing them with my bad mood because I'm sulking at the world for making a mess out of itself. Maybe I could say, I'm doing all right, how are you? And hear how they are. Maybe they're doing all right. Maybe I don't have to mess up their day in that moment.
1: You know.
0: I maybe I do not have to arouse everybody's ire just because I'm mad. I was sort of surprised about that. I don't have a reputation for going around arousing ire, but (laughs) it's kind of embarrassing to find out that you do it. It's not so embarrassing when I I remind myself that I'm probably doing it because I'm frightened. And I'm frightened because, first of all, there's there's stuff going on in the world. So that one might say, well, who wouldn't be frightened? It's a natural response of the body to frighten and to imagine possible sequelae. But it's not necessarily wise to imagine that I know all of sequelae. And the the, the truth of my mind, which again, if you've been here long enough, you know that in the, in the way that uh, Buddhist psychology works, we have different tendencies of mind. The mind that's greedy, the mind that's aversive, the mind that's torporous and sleepy the mind that's filled with doubts, insecurity, and the mind that's restless and frets a lot. And everybody who knows me knows that I go into that particular category, just by birth, not even by parenting. My parents didn't do it. Somehow in my karmic, uh, in my karmic inheritance. Um, and I, I really have, over the course of years, I think, been alert to it. So that if I begin um, an outlandish, catastrophic thought, apropos of nothing, I at least recognize it and say, well, this is your mind doing its catastrophic thinking. And uh, this is just a habit, you got born with it, don't be embarrassed about it, just don't pay any attention to it. Um, You know, it comes with being short or not being able to sing in key or, I mean, there are a few (laughs) things that, it's just one of those things. But if it's a thing that I, that is uh, is uh, uh, somewhat possible to believe, like this could only have a bad ending, it stayed around a little bit longer. It took me a few things to happen to see that in fact I was mad at the world for frightening me about what it's doing with itself. Now, it may be doing something terrible with itself, and it may have a bad end, but it doesn't make it any better if I get mad at it, and especially if I don't notice that I'm getting mad at it. So there were a few things that happened. First of all, the person who said, you know, there have been problems in the world and lots of wars before this one. Also, the awareness that... Um, really, uh, the the presence of anger in the in the mind blocks the possibility of thinking of creative solutions to what's going on, because the presence of anger in the mind blocks everything. It just There's a total mind block. So I began to think about the things that uh, don't block the mind, or that unblock the mind, or that lift up the heart. It's funny, we say open the mind and lift up the heart or something. Like that. But of course in Pali you know the word for heart and mind are the same. So I began to uh, read poetry and uh, listen to more music. So when you came in today, you heard a little bit of the uh, the, uh, the final Amen of uh, Handel's Messiah. And someone will remind me at uh, five minutes before the end, if I haven't finished, I'll play it for you at the end of the time. And I listened to a course on tape in, in my car traveling around on uh, the life of Haydn. He was a very happy man all of his life. He had different things happen to him that weren't so good, but he was just congenitally optimistic. Uh, the person who taught that course said it's uh, rare, fairly rare amongst creative people. Mostly you think about uh, creative people, poets and artists and composers as being uh, angst-ridden. Haydn was not angst-ridden. He enjoyed being alive. He had a great religious faith. And uh, the last major thing that he wrote is a wonderful, um, just a wonderful amazing oratorio called The Creation, you might know it. They played it as part of the pieces of it, as part of this course. And I found that when I listened I got so excited about it. What I got excited about was not only that it's beautiful music and amazingly conceived, but that a human mind thought of it. That was the part that exalted me. Think to myself, I, it's very easy for me to get very depressed about the depths of really dreadful things that human beings think about doing to each other. First of all, the ways in which our daily lives, in our daily lives are often unkind, but in our, uh, in our world lives, the way that we make wars on each other, make more and more smart weapons to hurt each other with, I think to myself, the, the same mind that made a, so to speak, smart weapon also has the capacity of writing poetry, writing beautiful music. We have amazing capacities as human beings. And the part that I was missing in my thinking, not seeing in myself that I was indulging my anger that came from my fear, is that out of the fear, the mind closes down, it gets smaller. And then it sees only the catastrophic ends. It sees only the bad possibilities. And it forgets that there are other possibilities. The definition of hope that uh, Václav Havel gave some years ago, which I thought was most wonderful, is he said, hope is the ability to be able to say no. And I thought, what on earth could that mean, the ability to say no? He said, it means the ability to look at what's exactly in front of you and say no to it. And I thought, well, well, that's kind of a denial. And he said, it doesn't mean no, this isn't happening. It means no, this isn't the only thing that's happening. That even though this is taking up the whole of my consciousness and it's right in front of me, I know that there is something more, that there's more around it, that uh, there are possibilities that I have not yet seen. And when the mind, when it's frightened, closes itself down it sees only what's right in front of it and when what's right in front of it is scary like the covers of the daily newspapers every day we get scared or I get scared for sure do you get scared I get scared horrible to look at and for me what happens I get scared I get mad why is this happening in my world And I forget that there's another possibility, that we are still here, that the culprits in this particular current moment in the world are as they always were. They are greed and hatred and delusion. They are ignorance in all of its many forms. So what I thought I wanted to talk about today was what the Buddha taught as five spiritual faculties we haven't talked about them here before because they're a list, you know. We have the five, the four noble truths, and the seven factors of enlightenment, and the eightfold path, and um, the ten paramitas. Sometimes, you know, actually, there's a book of lists. There's a compendium in the in the uh, in the um, canon. There's a compendium of lists. The 54, I think, various emotional states. There are seven this and eight that, and sometimes there are nine of this and nine of something else as well. There are lists. I think actually they serve very good purposes because, at least according to tradition, what the Buddha said was not written down for 500 years. People uh, transmitted it by word of mouth. So if you're going to do oral transmission, it's very handy to have a list. Like a mnemonic device, you can say, "Did I leave one out?" or "Did I remember?" Could memorize lists. So there's a list of five spiritual faculties, and they're um, faculties that you cultivate. They're um, they're ways of uh, the um, ways of behaving in the world. They're ways, of, or actually, they're ways that the mind can. Uh, well, you tell me whether they're ways of behaving. When we're, when we're finished with them, tell me, are these nouns or verbs or both or capacities of the adverbs or adjectives? No, they're not adjectives. The first of them... I want to start with that. I guess I'll start with the list. The first of them is faith. They don't talk so much about faith. My friend Sharon Salzberg wrote a beautiful book about faith, which I hope you have read or looked at just this last year. And really, often when people talk about faith uh, and people are doing practice in a Buddhist place, they say, well, who would you have faith in? And Sharon's point, I think, and certainly my sense, is one thing we can have faith in is our own power of discernment our own power of uh, reflection, the power of our own heart to see clearly when we're not confused. I have actually more of a faith than that. I think when, when, I, when I tell people I have faith, I have faith that it is a, uh, a just cosmos, it's a lawful cosmos, that the world is lawful even in the sense uh well th- the obvious ways of if people step off cliffs they fall down you know, that, uh, uh, you know the cartoons where uh, somebody uh some animal will be running and run off the end of a cliff and they'll run out a far distance from the end of the cliff and they'll keep on running and then they suddenly look down and they say ah and then they fall and the joke is that if they hadn't looked down of course they'd imagine be okay. But that's because it's a cartoon, and it's a fairy tale. In fact, if you run off a cliff, you fall down. Uh, but the, the, the thing that people say about it is well, here's the faith that I have in the lawful cosmos. I think that things have causes and effects. I think this is what the Buddha taught. I think it's actually the insight of anatta. That there are causes and effects that everything that happens is caused by something and is the cause of what happens afterwards. And in fact, in the biggest understanding of anatta, it turns out to be the understanding of karma that every single thing that happens influences every other single thing forever and ever. Some things at a proximal distance and some things distal. So that So, people will talk about proximal karma and distal karma. Um, Can you think of an example? Let me think of an example. Um, If I eat too much for lunch, I might have a stomach ache this afternoon. That would be the karmic consequence of my eating too much for lunch. If I ate too much over time, I'd have a different shape, I suppose I'm not sure. let's do one about with the uh, if i am um if I have been over the past several weeks uh uh unbeknownst to myself, letting my grumpiness at the world leak out at various hairdressers and postal <laughs> offices and uh supermarket clerks um uh, I don't know what the karmic effect of that is, because actually the weight of my karma in that department is mostly good. so It's probably carrying me through, or I hope it is. But I don't know what uh, dismay I set up in other people's minds, and how much upset I caused with my less than presence. And you're pretty clear about that. The world. This doesn't make the world less difficult. It just means my response to it could be cleaner and clearer and more spacious. If I say to somebody, they say, how, you know, have a good day, or how are you? I can say, I'm doing all right, how are you? And find out how they are before putting my whole problems onto them. Part of uh, why I've been thinking about this, thinking about faith, is that the faith that things have lawful uh, causes is one of the things that gives me a lot of hope. You know, there's been a lot of talk, even taking the situation in the world right now. People have been talking about, um, it's about oil, or it's about power, or it's about this, or it's about that, and probably it's about a lot of things. But the point that I take from that, and that's all the reason for the fact that we're in a war in the way that we are now. Probably all of the above and many more. But it's, it gives me some courage or some heart to know that we're not in a war out of nothing. I mean, that there are really are reasons. It is about that, and it is about this, and it is about that, and it is about that. So that it means that if we come to have different ways of being it can happen that the world comes to an end of war. That if there are certain legitimate causes, not legitimate so much, no legitimate. If they are not not wholesome, but legitimate. It's not a mistake that we're in a war given the fact that greed, hatred, and delusion are still active in the world. So it got that way. So if here we are cultivating non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion, we are part of a war-free future. In this very moment, we are out making a difference in the future of the world without being mad. Actually, being mad is adding more mad into an already mad world. And mad does not help. Mad is instinctive and spontaneous, but it doesn't help. And so faith for me is the faith that this it's lawful, whatever it is. I don't have to hate it not by accident, I just could change. I could teach something more. I could behave more, I could change, I could really make sure that my, that there are no wars going on in my own heart. If there was no war going on in anyone's heart, the world would be different because there would be different causes. So it's really important for me to have both the faith that things happen uh, in a lawful way and the faith that it's possible for a human being to live without enmity in their heart. We all know that though, because we know it in our own experience. Every time we have forgiven someone and felt better, we discovered in that moment, didn't you feel better when you really could let go of something? People say sometimes, you know, I know I would feel better if I let go let go of this particular grudge, but I can't do it. But then they can. Something happens and they can. And it's such a relief. Another you know the line that comes to mind, there's a line from the ancient Mariner. It's, well, it's, it's close enough to use and it just came in my mind so I'll tell it to you. There's a moment, do you remember the poem by Tennyson of uh, Coleridge, sorry towards the ancient man Um, on a ship at sea some uh, fantasied vision of course but uh, recounting a story it happened to me once that I was on a ship at sea and uh, I shot an albatross and an albatross being a, a bird of good luck to sailors and everyone died and we were marooned and becalmed And uh, the albatross hung around my neck. Everyone had died, and I was dying of thirst. Of course, the poetry is much more beautiful. And uh, lamenting all the while, lamenting and uh, feeling guilty, consumed with remorse and with pain. And then there's a moment at which the um, self-absorbed concern which is to prayer, which is really to be thinking about letting go of yourself, really praying. Because that self-same moment I did pray from round my neck so free, the albatross fell off and sank like lead into the sea, suddenly free of being caught in your own self, in your own woes, I brought this last week and I didn't get around to reading it to you, but I won't read the whole thing to you now. But how many of you know Lyle and the birthday party? Nobody knows Lyle and the birthday party? Lyle is a crocodile. He lives with this, he lives with the family on the upper west side, looks like. Maybe the upper east side. And it seems normal for him to be living with them, he just lives there. He was there in the house when they moved into the apartment three years previously. And he has lived there ever since. And uh, it was Joshua's birthday party. Joshua's a little boy in that family. And uh, he's watching the day before helping them uh, decorate. Here he is helping them decorate for the birthday party, making the birthday cake, helping them blowing up balloons, uh, watching the cake getting decorated, Um, and watch the cake getting decorated for Joshua. And then, the more Lyle thought about it, the more he wanted a birthday party. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Why shouldn't I have a birthday party, he asked himself. Suddenly, like storm clouds coming down on a lovely day, Lyle was jealous. Mean, green, jealous of Joshua's soon-to-be-celebrated birthday party, and so he goes about his, you know, he tasks and he helps arrange the chairs and he overcomes his jealousy and he actually even plays musical chairs and gives the children rides on his back and <laughs> then they go home. Well, they have birthday cake first, then they go home and he's. Not actually saying goodbye to people on the stair. He's just standing there in a wretched way. And the, everybody noticed it too. They said, This isn't a bit like the Lyle they knew and loved. Actually, maybe the supermarket clerk thought that about me last <laughs> week. <laughs> To make matters worse, that very night, Lyle stepped right through a toy drum, a favorite birthday gift of Joshua's. Everyone said it was an accident, and Lyle shouldn't feel bad about it. But was it an accident? Lyle went to bed, not feeling all too sure. And the next morning, he didn't come to breakfast. Mrs. Prim said, where is Lyle? I'm worried about him. And then by and by, she called him Lyle, come down and have breakfast. Very sad, Lyle came down. She said something's the matter with Lyle. And he didn't feel good. And Mrs. Prim looked in his mouth
1: and
0: <laughs> said, It's very red and flaky in there. <laughs> Mr. Prim said, That's because he's an alligator. <laughs> it looks that way. And see, he's all mopey. So everyone goes to work. And Mrs. Prim is so concerned while just standing and looking out the window all day that she calls a doctor and she uh, calls up for a veterinarian but somehow gets a person doctor with the same name and explains that the patient uh, she doesn't know how old he is so this pediatrician doesn't know how old he is uh, and he's green all over so they send an ambulance and take him to the hospital, and put him to bed, because they can't figure out what he has.
1: And there he is in the hospital. And they put him to
0: bed, and he gets up in the morning, and they say, stay right here until we figure out what you have. But he was interested in exploring the hospital, so he got up and uh, discovered that he could be helpful. But they were very surprised, although the patients were very surprised to see him, they liked him immediately. (laughs) Please, said one, would you raise my head so that I could read? Well, I was glad to be of service, raising up the head. Please, said another, would you lower my shade? There he is, lowering the shade. And uh, pouring glasses of water and changing the television programs and giving people rides in wheelchairs and... Discovered that in the children's ward, they liked it if he danced around and jumped. (laughs) He landed from what his last somersault, right in front of the doctor who said, Lyle, you shouldn't be out of bed. You're supposed to be sick. And Lyle smiled. He wasn't feeling a bit sick. Doing for others had made him feel good again. So good, in fact, that he'd forgotten about being jealous. So this is the famous Lyle I've been hearing about, said the other doctor. His uh, health seems to have improved. I wanted to read this to you because I think that the antidote to being consumed with fear and and concern about oneself, what one did, what one didn't do, is really doing for other people. Do, would you want to see these? Should I pass it around? You can look at Lyle. I also wanted to do it because I think that the mind really falls into a funk and it's hard to pull itself out. And so the, my experience has been that although my faith, when my mind is clear, is quite good, I really do think that everything has causes and, and sequelae. I think if unwholesome causes have created a situation that is not good for people, that wholesome causes can change the situation, that uh, there isn't any really cause in history. I mean, here's the world, it's still alive. <laughs> and of course, we could make up a story about why It might not continue to be alive now in spite of the fact that... But that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is to say this is the biggest peace movement in the history of the world. People are beginning to think this is a very small planet. Things need to be done another way. These may be some very difficult times, but they don't have to be the end of times. Really important for me to have that as a perspective because that's a less... The other perspective is a totally scary scenario. And when I am frightened, and I imagine it might be that way for you, my mind closes and it doesn't see how I can be of help, how I can lift myself out of where I am. Poor Lyle had to go to the hospital to do it. (laughs) So The first of the spiritual faculties is uh, Faith. The second one is zeal, energy. Uh, well, the, Lyle is a good example of zeal, you know, that uh, all of a sudden his energy came back to him. That in a moment of clarity, if we see it, it's a moment of tremendous energizer. I know that some of you heard me tell this story, but I tell it to you again because it was such a um, it was another one of those great teaching moments for mm-hmm. me of having been uh, on the East Coast earlier this year. Uh, I think I was It was uh, taking the train out of uh, Washington mm-hmm. so that uh, not only was the world situation looking more uh, difficult from a uh, perspective of living in this country, but also... Um, the Washington scene was very tense at that time. And uh, I read the morning newspaper on that particular day, and I probably got so frightened by it that I got, I felt overwhelmed with sleepiness. And uh, I asked the woman next to me if she'd wake me up uh, in 20 minutes, because I was going to take a nap. It's on the Metro liner going to New York. And I said, wake me in 20 minutes, please, because um, I wanted to be up for a while before I got to New York. And uh, I folded up my newspaper and she said, uh, are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm okay. I said, are you okay? And she said, no, I'm not. <laughs> and immediately there was a big jolt of energy through me uh, because that's what happens to human beings. And, and really it was a tremendous augmenter of my faith at that moment because another piece of faith, so told you two pieces of faith, I have faith that it's a lawful cosmos I have faith in the ability of human minds if they're not confused, if they're not overwhelmed to see clearly. And I actually have a great faith that we are good. That fundamentally, we are good. That fundamentally, uh, we mostly feel for other people. Most people do. When we don't, I think it's some really, uh, unusual circumstance of, of, Either genetics or or uh, experiences growing up, that mostly we feel for other people. Need to talk a little bit about how. Um, well, uh, different people are moved. I'm looking for experiences of em- of empathic uh, connection. Do you know, you watch? Um, watch the Olympics and watch people getting uh, medals at the end and the camera pans over to the athlete's mother, you feel good for her, yeah, or the athlete's partner, whoever it is, you feel good for them, athlete's child, you feel good for them, or uh, I cry at the uh, uh, AAU swim meets for young children, they always have a... Boy Scout Troop or Girl Scout Troop that's raising the flag and they just always look so motley about it, but they get it done, you know, and it's so touching. And, I, you know, I, they're just things that touch us. We have touchable hearts and we get excited about things that, where well, we can help. Energy is a, one of the five spiritual faculties. want to be sure to tell you the three others, and I want to tell you the way in which they all operate along the same path but first, I'm going to tell you all five and then tell you they are like five um spurs on a train. Do you know the sometimes you see a uh, a train uh come out of a roundhouse and it comes a certain amount on you i see it better i guess on on somebody's train set I'd have to be up a hundred feet in the air to see it. But sometimes, they actually, when you come in on a train and you, you, you get to drive over the yard, you see there are all these different tracks, and then they converge on one spur that goes into the roundhouse. So I see these, and you might think of these five as five spurs that come together on a track of peace. Because when my faith is strong and present, then my mind and heart remain relatively peaceful can be uh, concerned about what's going on, but not hysterical about it and not completely hopeless about it, concerned, looking for what can I do, how can I serve, how can I help. But I could somehow rest in the faith that it'll be okay or it'll be what it is. And I can't really do anything except keep my heart peaceful. It'll be what it is. That's even closer. It won't be okay necessarily. It might be worse than what it is. But it'll be what it is. I can't make it what it's going to be, except for my contribution to what it's going to be. And if what I want it to be is peace, then where I need to be is with a heart of peace. That's where it happens. doesn't mean I can't do everything active to promote peace. I can go on a peace march. I can give talks at peace rallies. If I do them with peace in my heart, I do myself and everybody else a lot of good. Energy also leads to peace because the lack of energy is hopelessness. And if I keep energy up in my mind, then I don't give up hope. There's something to be done. I can do something about this. I think that I feel most frightened when I feel the situation is hopeless. Nothing can be done. I might even be in a situation where I don't know anything that can be done, but probably somebody else does. Somebody else will have a good idea. Mindfulness is the third of the spiritual faculties. So I mean, mindfulness is the core of what we practice here. Mindfulness, the definition of mindfulness is really the balanced attention, the balanced moment-to-moment attention, balanced focused moment-to-moment attention on the experience of that moment. What's happening? Here I am. It's really not to name it so much as to really know it intimately, to connect with it. And to connect with the moment fully implies a certain amount of peace. It brings with it a certain amount of peace in the moment that we are connected with the moment, not running away from it or turning away from it or uh, pretending it isn't there. Say, here I am. Somebody said this morning in the early morning precepts class that uh, there was a particular issue that she had been uh, concerned about telling out in her workplace, something about herself an interest that she had, that maybe her uh, colleagues would think of as unusual. And people often think of meditation as uh, an unusual insta- interest, uh, or all, all kinds of spiritual topics, spiritual studies, as uh, unusual, kind of the things that people don't mention so much. But in fact, uh, she'd uh, found a circumstance where she thought mentioning her interest would be helpful to the people there or to one specific person. So it required a certain amount of courage to do it. But it turned out, and it turned out, that mentioning it was helpful to this particular person, and it felt really good to come out. It always feels good to come out about yourself because there's an element of unpeace in hiding. So there's a certain amount of um, um, alertness that you have to have if you're hiding to not accidentally come out, you know, about who you are in whatever way. Oh, I'd be so embarrassed if people knew this or that about me. I think it'd be the most wonderful thing if we could suddenly take a pill or dissolve it in water <laughs> and no longer be embarrassed, you know? not be, not to feel humiliated. Anybody here has a problem with humiliated or embarrassed, you know? The only person I know who I've ever seen who doesn't have one is the Dalai Lama. In public, he makes, you know, not egregious errors, but then he make a mistake on a text and his translator points it out to him. And he says, oh yeah, I made a mistake, huh? Could have a thousand people in the audience. I don't like to make a mistake when there's two people out there, or one. You know, I, I just really like to be right so much.
1: <laughs>
0: it's actually, I don't think it's that I like to be right, it's just that I don't like to feel embarrassed about not being right. So, you know, whoever knows where that, doesn't matter where it comes from, it matters that I have it. This is a poem by Wendell Berry. I think it's a very wonderful poem about, uh, not about mindfulness, but I think it is. It's called, I Go Among Trees. I go among trees and sit still. All my stirring becomes quiet around me, like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them asleep like cattle. Then what is afraid of me comes and lives a while in my sight. What it fears in me leaves me, and the fear of me leaves it. It sings and I hear its song. Then what I am afraid of comes. I live for a while in its sight. What I fear in it leaves it, and the fear of it leaves me. It sings, and I hear its song. I don't have to do anything on top of that. I get You get that. Isn't that wonderful? I think that's what this practice is about. We sit here, or we stand here, or we lie here. In any moment that I am able to stay there and say, I'm afraid, when I'm collected, and then able to say, and I'm afraid, the fear leaves me. Fear is extra, actually. It's the contraction of the mind around what has happened. And actually where all of these go, I think, is to the uncontracted mind and the open heart, really a balanced heart that continues to be able to function in the function that it's meant to function, which means to love. It continues to be able to care. We can care and not be frightened. I'll talk a little bit about concentration, the fourth of the spiritual faculties. In the Eightfold Path, right understanding, right aspiration, Right action, right speech, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness. Right concentration is actually the eighth of them. Sometimes when I teach, I put mindfulness at the end because we're mostly teaching mindfulness here and I want to lead up with a great crescendo. But the truth is that in the classic lists, concentration is the last. It really means a mind that is so concentrated that it can stay focused and steady. Not necessarily to the exclusion of what's going on. So caught up in a concentration that nothing impacts it. But so steady that the hindrances don't impact it. That's the difference. The hindrances are the five um, afflictions of mind in classic Buddhist thought. I mentioned them earlier. They are lust or greed, aversion or anger, torpor or sleepiness, restlessness, fretting, and doubt is the fifth one. Now here's a lovely little list. I'll just tell it to you. Maybe next week we'll have more time to do this list. But here are the list of the factors of a concentrated mind. Concentrated mind has the ability to aim precisely, really notice what's there. It has the ability to sustain its attention. It's called aiming and sustaining the mind, the first two qualities of concentration. Third quality of concentration is the quality of rapture, real physical pleasure. Somebody said their dog lay down under the piano and listen to the vibe. It's like when your body vibrates with, vi- with vibrations. So I really want us to listen to the Amen chorus at the end of the Messiah in a minute. The fourth of the qualities of concentration is um, happiness in the sense of uh, contentment. Really contentment. calm. And the fifth is one-pointedness, the ability, if you wanted to, to really focus on something and stay with it. It works out in a very neat way that those five qualities of a concentrated mind happen to be the five antidotes to the five hindrances of mind. And I'll tell you how it's so, so neat how the mind works. The quality of being able to aim the mind precisely and really see what's going on is the antidote to a torporous, sleepy, confused mind. Wakes it up. You are sleepy. Someone rings a bell. If there's something that really connects with it, you wake up. If You suddenly, you could be sleepy, and you suddenly see an old friend. Ah, my old friend. Because you noticed, you saw it. The ability to aim the mind just in a precise and exact way, wakes it up. It is the antidote to torpor, Sustaining the mind is the antidote to doubt, because doubt means the mind wobbles. Maybe this, maybe that, maybe this, maybe that. Sustaining is the antidote to mind wobble, which is the cause of doubt arising. Rapture is the antidote to anger and aversion because you can't be mad and be filled with rapture at the same time, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Mm-hmm. When I used to uh, uh, see couples in, in a kind of a therapeutic setting and help them work on their relationship, one of the things that I told them, I don't know how uh, elegant this is in terms of psychodynamic theory, is they're really gonna have talk about some difficulty. Why don't you have dinner first? If you're not hungry, if you just had a great dinner and had some nice conversation, then you could talk about something because you already feel pleasant. If you feel pleasant, you have like a possibility of a reasonable way of listening to each other. And it works the other way too. You have a big disruption and neither of you can remember why you're in a relationship with each other. It's probably a good time to go out and get a pizza and go to a movie and uh, <coughs> fill the mind with a little bit of delight. And then after a while, the mind relaxes a little bit because it has a little bit soothing in it. And they says, well, yeah, there are some other reasons why, in fact, I could stay with this person a little bit more. You know? Mind returns to its normal context. Anyway, rapture is the antidote to aversion. Uh, Contentment and calm is the antidote to fretting and restlessness. And the last one uh, of one-pointedness is the antidote to greed, because actually what lust and greed are, are the mind looking around, scanning the horizon, what else could I get? Oh, that looks good over there, that looks good, Mm -hmm. that looks good, that looks good also, wow, but over there it looks good. The mind that's one-pointed doesn't get so caught up in greed. It's, it's on a roll. It's doing what it's doing. It's very neat to think that concentration is one of those spiritual faculties. And the last one we have just a little bit of time to talk about is uh, Faculty of Wisdom. Wisdom is a little bit different from mindfulness. Mindfulness is more bare attention. This is happening, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening. Wisdom, I I often feel, is what accrues just by itself uh, as the the fruit of uh, mindfulness, that we begin to know not only what's happening in this moment, But the truth of things, the largest truth of things, like uh, greed and hatred and delusion are really torments in the mind. And that the absence of greed and hatred and delusion is really peace. And that peace is possible, which is the third of the Four Noble Truths, because we experience it and really get to know it. That peace in my own heart is possible, in everyone's heart possible, and that the, 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 the sequelae of peace in the heart is um, the desire to do good, to soothe everyone else's non-peace in the heart, to be a comforter. I actually think that we are all really strung to be comforters in the world. The line on the Metta Sutta says, just as a mother would give her life to support her one and only child, just so should we towards all beings, boundlessly open our hearts. I don't think it's meant only for women or only for biological mothers or only for parents. I think that human beings have the possibility and that's what it means. I think it's a poetic way of saying human beings have the possibility of uh, really loving Ceaselessly. There's a there's a um, a text from uh, uh, a Christian mystic text called The Way of the Pilgrim, and the name of it is Pray Without Ceasing. And in it, the monk uh, whose uh, practice is described is given the task by his uh, spiritual director to pray without ceasing, and uh, I really think uh, we can translate that or move it or include in that the truth that if we did that we could just keep wishing well for ourselves and all beings. We would love without ceasing ourselves and all beings. That It's really connected to the, the all the teachings about metta. So this was a peace teaching. Well, there's another piece about uh, wisdom, which I think we'll start from next week, that the wisdom to again see the whole range of human possibility, that human beings confused do things that sometimes are completely baffling and human beings not confused do things that are completely amazing. And that whole range of motion is available in between. And here we are, each of us, when people talk about I'm on the path, you know mostly i don't think about on the path because even the expression "I am on the path" has the idea that other people are not on the path we're all on the path like it or not, know it or not. I mean, where else can you be there's one path either i'm I am awake and loving and uh, uh, appreciating my life or i'm in pain and suffering. I brought this to read to you. I'm going to read it even, it doesn't exactly connect with anything that I just said, but I read the whole book of Billy Collins poetry this week, and uh, who I hadn't known a week ago. It's a very big cause for lifting up my heart, but it's really a poem about how to see a situation in a different way. So I'll read the poem and then I'll play you the three-minute Amen chorus at the end of Handel's Messiah. This is called Another Reason Why I Don't Keep a Gun in the House. The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. He's barking the same high rhythmic bark that he barks every time they leave the house. They must switch him on on their way out. (laughs) The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. I close all the windows in the house and put on a Beethoven symphony full blast. But I can still hear him muffled under the music barking, barking, barking. And now I can see him sitting in the orchestra his head raised (laughs) confidently as if Beethoven had included a part for Barking Dog. (laughs) When the record finally ends, he is still barking, sitting there in the oboe section, barking, his eyes fixed on the conductor who is entreating him with his baton, while the other musicians listen in respectful silence to the famous Barking Dog solo. That endless coda that first established Beethoven as an innovative genius. Push <laughs> the play. Somebody thought that up. (laughs) Amen.